Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Uh, our apologies for the audio issues last week. We actually we do double end recording. Like we 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 are all very high tech in advance about how we do this, and we actually happen to both jointly have issues on both our ends of our computers. Yeah. But I think we have it fixed this week. So sorry about that. We we we, we promise to do better. Everything that could go could go wrong did go wrong like uh, problems on both ends and the internet was playing up it was it was not a good week right we started with we knew the internet was a problem and i think what actually happened was we missed issues that were happening because we just blamed it on the internet being a problem and uh anyhow i mean this is the downside i guess of not having you know a a sort of like uh, a boss an editor uh, a gatekeeper if you will Mm. to uh you know us putting it out ourselves we we sometimes screw up and and, you know our our apologies i was gonna do a different segue i was gonna be like it's so easy to blame things on the internet isn't it (laughs) also works also works it seems to be the thing to do these Uh days right so I wrote this week about this really horrific set of of stories, uh, originally first in the New York Times and then in the New Yorker, about Harvey Weinstein, the the longtime Hollywood producer, and what was you know really decades of of predatory behavior uh, towards towards women. I mean, there's always been the sort of quote unquote jokes about the casting couch, and this was a at least one situation where it wasn't a joke it was reality and it was terrible and it went on for a very long time and lots of people kind of seem to know about it but no one would actually write about it or do anything about it and that's terrible and and we it goes without saying but i'm more than happy to say it condemn it in the strongest possible terms right and it's it's topics like this they are incredibly emotional and that condem- condemnation is important. Like that's everyone lining up and saying this behavior is not okay. And that's how things like societal norms get formed and how this kind of thing, like you see someone hung out to dry as a result of this. And it's the thing, it's part of what puts pause in someone else doing this in the future. At the same time, there is value in coming along and doing a rational analysis where the emotion is taken out to understand what exactly happened, how this What were the circumstances that enabled this to go on for so long in order to prevent this kind of – to understand it and prevent it from happening again? Yeah, I mean it really is such a sort of fraught area. I mean we're obviously coming at it from a perspective of, you know, uh, just by – being white, you know, white men were, were much less likely to face these sorts of mm. situations, and, and and certainly fully cognizant of that. And and you know, to that extent, you know, I hope I got the benefit of the doubt for this article, and we, and we will for this podcast. And it's interesting though, some of the things you kind of mentioned, like there's there's multiple parts going on here. Like on one, there's the this is bad behavior, you shouldn't do that. And I, I agree with you. It's good to see this, to see widespread condemnation as as pat as it may seem because changing social norms and expectations is important. And, you know, there are certainly rumors about other bad actors, uh, no pun intended in Hollywood around this sort of stuff. But, you know, I think it's, it's, it seems likely that Weinstein was a particularly extreme bad actor. And, and to make it very clear that if you act this way, you will get, you know, you will get called out and there will be consequences is a good thing. And, and so when I'm thinking about this and thinking about the sort of consequences, something that was very much sort of in the back of my head as, as I was writing about this, and this was one of the sort of tech connections, if you will, was all the reports this past week about or this past summer around mm. like VCs and the sort in reports of sexual harassment. And what was interesting to think about was – how does this stuff happen in Hollywood? What's the sort of structure that makes it not just that bad things happen because there are bad actors where, in lots mm. of industries, but how could it happen for years, for decades? Yeah. It's it's exactly the reaction I had to it as well. Like you, you, there are very powerful people that end up rising past someone like Harvey Weinstein who experienced it, like some very famous actresses, and yet somehow this persisted for for. For decades. And the same thing in VC, like how these people with such public profiles are able to get away with it and it, 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 it. and and nothing happens. It's almost mind blowing. Right. That's exactly it. It was interesting. I, I wrote this article. It ended up being sort of the article is one thing. Then I wrote something in the next day in the Daily Update because about the venture capital industry because it didn't quite fit in this article, but it, it was something that was a driving 
that drove me to to write about this in the first place. If you think about this structure and and why it gave you know Weinstein the power to take advantage of the women in this way and to to your point to get away with it and and to get away mm. with it continually over time when it was very much an open secret like that structure you see that structure in lots of different places and you see it in the venture capital industry for example and and so i think it's it's worth unpacking what is this structure because when you understand that structure you can see areas where this could also happen or or and, mm. and 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 also, how can we undo those structures? Again, I'm not saying the structure of Hollywood made Weinstein a predator. Like his actions are his responsibility, and I don't know how it will happen. But I hope they're in some respect, and you know, he 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 has to answer for them in, in this life or the next, or mm. whatever the phrase may be. And but it's it's worth unpacking again. How could it how how could it not be uncovered? How could there not be consequences? If that makes sense. Yeah, it's a it's a loaded question, and I guess again to echo what you said, uh, uh, we ask for your forbearance, like in in taking the emotion out of this as we explore the topic, uh, in in order to understand what happened and 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 in part to prevent it from happening again, and not just to prevent it from happening again, but there is an issue, there's an aspect here where over the last sort of uh, as they say past nine months in particular, but there's been a when we've talked about it several times in this podcast, a sort of desire for the way things used to be and weren't things better back in the day before all this internet stuff came along and, and messed stuff up. And mm. we've talked about how that is like, that's, there's a lot, it was, the old days weren't always good. They weren't good necessarily just be sitting on the assembly line all day. But, but one of the points we've made again, and again, is they weren't necessarily good for underrepresented people or minorities or women who, you know, they were great for sort of people like us, but there are lots of people they weren't great for. Mm. And this is actually, it's worth thinking about. This is an example of how the way the world used to be was a world that was not great. Like there were bad outcomes that came from this world of gatekeepers. And this is what it's, I mean, it's obviously huh. an extreme example, but it's a meaningful example nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, the irony of the whole situation is because it was hidden in the past, people didn't, I mean, obviously, victims of it knew it was happening, but people in general didn't know it was happening. And it's only coming to light now. And it's easy to attribute more of the distaste for the way things are right now to the fact that all this is coming to light when really that speaks volumes to many of the benefits that we've reflected on of of what's changing and speaks so poorly to how things were in the past because this just remained hidden no one knew about it and victims had to suffer in silence so let's get it let's get into this actual structure and which i wrote about this week so and i i did i did a few drawings <laughs> um so if you want the the link as always is in the show notes but i think the key thing to think about here is this sort of there there is this big imbalance between sort of opportunities to get to be a movie star basically to to gain distribution to be in a movie versus the number of people that wanted to be in a movie right i mean who everyone wants a movie star the, the effective supply of potential actors is you know for all intents and purposes it's it's unlimited right and uh, <laughs> anytime when supply gets unlimited weird things start happening to the market well, well because the issue is how many movies are there to star in and what's what's really interesting is when Weinstein got started when Miramax, uh, his, his first company that sold Disney, and now the, the company is the Weinstein Company or something. But when, when his first company got started, there was something like 107 or something wide releases from, from Hollywood. And this past year, there was 93. So actually, the number of like big movies has actually decreased over the last uh, 20, 30 years. And, and if you think about it, there's like four or five like meaningful roles in those movies. There's at most you know, like four or 500 slots a year. And there's all the existing movie stars who, who are the most desirable that, to, to fill many of those slots as it is. So like the, the opportunities sort of break in. There's not that many opportunities. 
Right. It's effectively people are commoditized and they, you do anything to damage a commodity. Uh, it, it doesn't become very appealing anymore. You just move on to the next one, right? Exactly. And, and I mean, and you can look at sort of, I mean, especially when the Murak started, it was very sort of like, like indie art, you know, art, art house sort of movies. And even then, the, like the number of theatrical releases in the US. So that's has increased over the last 30 years. But last year it was still like 690 or something like that. So, I mean, mm. which is, seems like a lot but and that includes like netflix releases and all those sorts of things which i mean that seems like a lot but when you think about the again that's still at most like a few thousand sort of slots and again the supply of potential actors is 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 so huge and your your point is exactly it if everything is the same if they're all commodity and and when they start out before when they're first sort of trying to break in, you know, it, it, you don't really know if someone's going to actually resonate, is going to actually be a great star. And it's this very subjective sort of thing, you know, and, and Weinstein and other producers fancy themselves as sort of like the the curators of culture, right? And they, they are figure out who's going to go forward, who's going to not. And when you have all this supply, then it's very easy. The easiest thing to do is, is just set a floor and cut everyone out. And how do you cut everyone out? Well, maybe you heard through the grapevine, oh, that person's a pain to work with or they have a bad mm. attitude or whatever. Then just, they're out. Why? Why are they? Maybe you're overlooking someone that's great. It doesn't matter. There's there's 500 other people next right. in line, and, and there's no counterfactual. Like you, like it's it's rare, rarely going to be the case that you know. Oh, this movie suffered because we didn't have that person. Like you get someone else who's fantastic, and so they can just keep getting away with it. Right, and I think about this in the context of like hiring. A lot of companies will have like resume screens, and certainly now there's like companies that they'll automate it. They'll have, we'll apply AI to resumes, right? And what do they do? They screen out like the the most generic and easy one is like screen out anyone that doesn't have a CS degree for a product management degree, for example. Like like Google, for example, would always just screen out like. If you don't, if you don't, if you don't have a CS background or you don't have a certain list of things, boom, you're out. It doesn't matter. And Google's like selection rate for applications is like it's in the it's like in the fractions of a percent or something like that. They just have so many uh, applications, and I like to complain about this on Twitter, like because I do think what happens is companies miss out on on truly great prospects, like the sort of 100x sort of employees, because what happens is when you raise the floor, when you sort of reduce cut off whoever can come in you're also reducing the ceiling like there, there's the this implicit trade-off uh, of sort of risk and reward where if if you're not going to comb through the dregs you're also going to miss this the true outliers that don't have your traditional background and and it, but but on the same time, I can understand it. I, it's totally understandable given how many people are want these want these jobs. Yeah, I mean, it becomes a self-reinforcing cycle, though, because if you take a few of those interesting people and realize they're a hundred times performers, a hundred times performers, and to be to be clear, the valley definitely values people like that. But if you don't get them in, then you don't realize that there are these people that don't conform to the the prototype of of what it is that you think is going to make a great employee and you can't see that performance and then you can't correct later on and so it then it's then oh well the only employees who do well are these folks who have this very specific background and then it just reinforces the cycle this gets into some like the diversity problems and 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 pipeline problems right if if everyone has to have a certain and you just you just nailed it right there if you're building your sort of what makes a great employee based on the employees that are already in your company, by definition, you're reinforcing whatever got those employees into the company. And your point about, you made this you made this a little bit ago uh, in, in the context of Hollywood, you don't know what would have happened, the, the counterfactual, mm. if you would have hired someone else. And this is the mistake of so much analysis is failing to understand that there are counterfactuals. Mm -hmm. And if, and, and if you don't account for them, your analysis is going to be fundamentally flawed. Right. It's that's exactly it. Again, I feel a little bad that we we so casually made the connection to the you know these women being taken advantage of to our very you know privileged well existences here. But in some respects, I also hope it's it's helpful to for the folks listening to this, particularly those uh, who are similar to us, you know, white male, mm. rich, whatever, to uh, to understand the sort of like uh, how nefarious these structures are to people who 
who, who are behind the eight ball, who don't have a chance, who are underrepresented, who, who are in situations where the power imbalance is just completely and utterly out of whack. And it, 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 it is just such a blind spot. Like it is, it can be such a blind spot to the people who are inside because all you see are the folks that look a certain way and act a certain way and are doing super well. And you just assume that that's, that's what, that's what success looks like. These are the people that do well here. These are the people we need more of. And you don't even realize there's a problem. You don't even realize that you're missing out on people that, that could add another perspective. So anyhow, it was this, it was this structure of power imbalance that was, was really the, the, the thing I wanted to focus on uh, in this case. Because, it, again, it's a structure that you see repeated. And yes, it, it, uh, we don't intend any sort of uh, callousness in applying it to to us, but I mean, again, as I just said, the hope is that this will make it sort of more identifiable for people mm-hmm. who are, generally speaking, in better positions. Like, the, whenever you have a situation where you have significantly more supply than demand, whoever gets to, or, or significantly more supply than places for that supply to go, whoever controls the gate and the gatekeeper it gives them significant significant power and just that's just generally true when you have a situation where there's very few gatekeepers there's almost a sort of like possibility of collusion like formal or informal it gets far worse because what happens is someone who it's one thing to not get a role in Harvey Weinstein's latest movie right that's fine that's normal lots of people don't get roles in movies that's that that's the the expectation is that a new actor does not get a role and they're going to stay there and go to wait tables and do whatever is necessary to get another chance, right? What is what is what is not possible, what is not okay is to have something get attached to your reputation. Oh, that's a pain, someone hard to work with, they complain all the time, whatever it might be, because then you're done. It's over because there's a million other fish in the pond. Right. And it 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 cuts the same way whether you're in uh whether you're a a budding actor or you're a budding entrepreneur with no reputation and you're you're looking to raise capital it, it it's exactly the same thing like that reputation gets attached because you make waves because of something that's happened and then that's it you can be sunk right and and this, and this was the sort of the connection to venture capital that was one of the reasons to write this article and again it didn't make it into the main article i it just didn't end up fitting but i put it in the daily update the next day but there was all these all these things that came out over the summer in particular about sexual harassment happening in the startup funding space. And it's because, and again, first and foremost, it's because people were bad actors. And one, I'm glad folks got called out. And two, people who know about this stuff, people in equivalent positions of power, that is other VCs that know about this and don't call it out or continue working with these people. Those folks deserve just as much condemnation because it's the it's the only real way out of this issue. Like because to ask victims to do the call out is to ignore the the massive cost that comes with that, and the cost isn't just the emotional cost, which is significant. It's the it's the jeopardizing their career. Exactly. And and this is what makes venture capital in particular so nefarious is, is that it's a lot closer to Hollywood than probably people in the industry want to think about. Because why? It's all subjective. Like you ask, how do you, oh, mm. I, I choose I choose investment based on the quality of the team. Or like yeah. how passionate are they? Oh, do they have a real interest in this problem? Are they willing to commit for 10 years? That's all subjective bullshit, right? There's no like, and which, but the problem is that's sort of inescapable. There, there are, if it was easy to choose venture investments based purely on, on metrics, then like, then we would, the, the entire industry wouldn't exist as it is. It exists because the craziest ideas sometimes end up being true. The toys sometimes end up being tools. And there is absolutely an aspect of art and curation yeah. to this, and just as there is in Hollywood. But but you create a black box, right? Like there's a black box of what goes into art. And these people that are artists can put whatever they want in the black box. And if it's if it's uh, legendary VCs that we that are storied that have done brilliant work, like it's just it's just the art and the intuition of picking the right companies that goes into the black box. But it's very easy once you set that black box of art or intuition up for you to start putting sinister things in there too, because there's no there's no way of unpacking it. Yeah, and to be clear, I don't think most VCs are like artists in, in these sort of artists. I think there's like there's a handful of like folks that 
are actually are genuinely really really good. But even mm-hmm. if you think that's all complete bullshit, like it, it's the issue still remains. When you say, oh, it's just because they have access to to money and and they and they by virtue of their background they can network into it and all stuff. Like that's the same issue still is still the case in that there's far more wannabe entrepreneurs then there is cash to fund them particularly which means that the the power rests in those distributing the cash which means that it's very and so so when the power's there and if you say no no one's going to question you that's the key thing like no one like everyone's like oh yeah i remember when i passed over facebook i remember when i passed over google or i remember i passed over uber whatever it might be and no one like it, that's it's just accepted that that's what happens, right? There's no condemnation for saying no to something because the presumption is you're going to get some right and you're going to get some wrong. But that fuzziness means that like no is the default and you're not going to be challenged for saying no. So if you say no because you heard through the grapevine that this female entrepreneur, for example, is difficult to work with when the reality is that difficult to work with is because she reported someone else for sexually harassing her. Like the pro- or, or she rebuffed your advances. Even like. worse, even worse, right? There's no telltale sign that that's what's happening, and no one is going to be questioned for for saying no to her. Not just now, but basically forever. And and her entrepreneurial career is sunk. And so that's how you end up in this perverse situation where this happens so many times, and like, and it and it just doesn't come out. Yeah, so and again, and that's why it, in some respects it's useful. I thought it would be helpful to look at for the tech industry to look at Hollywood and, and to see this structure because sometimes it's easier to see what's happening when it's not you. When it's right? not you, like, right? And sometimes it's easier yeah. to see it when it is you, and that's why we talked about sort of the 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 job application thing. Like it's to understand the structure of things. Like, again, it's critical to fixing it. Again, there's multiple parts to it. On one hand, it is useful and necessary to condemn these actions just broadly, sort of as a society, and and to make it into a societal norm that this sort of stuff is, is not okay, one. Two, it is also important to look at and understand the structure, particularly when stuff just is happens again and again, right? Because there's a bad actor component, but there's also a what are the structure that lets this stuff that lets this stuff sort of persist and happen again over time? And it's it's crazy how the dam breaks on these stories, right? Like it's uh, there's a it's almost like a a collective action where if if one of the victims breaks off individually and does something by herself, and it's typically herself in these instances, then then she gets the gets cast as the difficult one but there's a role of the media to play here in in almost in almost forming a collective group allowing a lot of these women to come forward all at once and when it happens when it happens multiple times when multiple people come forward at once it's not one person that's that's difficult it suddenly starts to turn the tide and it's kind of crazy that the uh, the all the mechanisms that you you just described prevented like they were the the old way of doing things the power that weinstein had enabled him to go to the potentially the new york times and like uh, quash this story like the the role of of the media in in order to protect these victims of allowing them to form a group and to start to change this and he had that much power and and an instance of another gatekeeper such that it was a he was able to prevent this story from running uh, how many years ago it's crazy yeah i mean this is a little again this is the allegation of a reporter that worked for the new york times uh 15 some years ago so again it's it, there is an aspect of a sort of he said he said she said mm-hmm. to it so uh, again all this is is not confirmed and it really can never be confirmed but yeah there is a, a former reporter for the new york times sharon waxman that that said Actually, I was working on a story along these lines, and it got squashed. And it got squashed by Einstein going above my, but Einstein going above my head. And and the New York Times response has been, oh, we would never do that. And the editor has no response, remembrance of that. And and oh, someone said you only had one source. Like it was the most wishy washy sort of response that basically rests on we're the New York Times, we wouldn't do that. And mm-hmm. and it's but it's interesting to think about what well, would they like again. We don't we we don't know we can't know but sometimes it is useful to think about what was the structure 
uh, that was going on here to make this, is this believable or not? And you go back to that time period where 67% of the New York Times revenue came from advertising. And that was starting to slip. Like it, it was already starting to go down. The newspaper industry had really been walled by Craigslist in particular, taking out a big sort of chunk of, of advertising, the classified aspect. And it was on the, looking backwards, it was on the very precipice of just a total plunge in revenue where I mean, last year, the New York Times had 1.6 billion revenue, which is down 53% from 2004 when this story ran. So, I mean, there, there was this, there, it was a huge drop that was sort of coming. And what's a huge advertiser? A huge advertiser are, are movies, new movies. So, and the average expenditure, I got the number for 2003, the average Hollywood movie spent an average of 34.8 million in advertising. I and mean, that number is significantly higher now, but that was the time when this alleged incident happened. And some portion of that certainly went to newspapers, would go, certainly go to a national newspaper like the New York Times. You're going for a nationwide release, getting that huge first box office is really important. It's important mm-hmm. not just for money making, but it's also important for the, the, the follow on marketing. Oh, come see the number one movie in America. It's really important for like DVD orders. Like Blockbuster used to base, when Bach was still wrong, used to base the number of movies they would order based on the the opening week box office. It matters for foreign distribution, whether the movie gets picked up or not, or in how many screens it goes on to. So, like, to th- I, I, quite clearly, I can't, I couldn't find the specific numbers. But if you just understand sort of the industry, there's no question that Weinstein, by virtue of his role, was a major advertiser with the New York Times. And so you think about this structure of what's going on here, is it plausible that he could go to the head honchos and be like, you know, I really think it'd be best if the story didn't ran or as happened and got totally watered down and buried. Uh, is that is it at least plausible to imagine how that might happen? Well, I, I sure think so. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And again, we, we 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 don't know. No one will ultimately know what happened. You know, with with that story. But you start to think about what was, how many other stories do you think there mm. might have been mm-hmm. in the history of not just New York Times but all newspapers that were either one never written about or two buried or three. I mean, there's always been this this aspect. We talked about this a couple of years ago when the sort of Facebook live videos came up and there was that incident in Minnesota where the the driver was was shot. And how many times and it was filmed on Facebook Live, right? How many times did stuff like that happen? Mm. And no one knew because you had, speaking of white males, sitting in a bunch of newsrooms in New York deciding all the news that was fit to print. Like that's literally the New York Times slogan that they still have. I mean, think about the implications of that. It's it's stating quite baldly that we decide what is news. And if you want to know what is news, come read our newspaper. This goes back to the I, the point that I made at the start, which is all this bad stuff that people feel is happening right now and the pining for the past, what's coming to light is stuff that's been happening for so much time for so long for for decades potentially and yet it's getting attributed in people's minds to stuff that's happening right now when all this is is like the the structure being changed in large part because of the internet bringing it to light now and that is a good thing because that is the beginning of that starting to change right and there's an aspect where the world seems so much worse now but yeah, is the right. world actually worse or is that we're now much more aware of worse yes. things that have been happening f- for a very long time that's that's the point I'm trying to make exactly. What's what's interesting, what, what's what's really interesting to sort of back up and think about. You've talked about the internet, is to think about the how the internet is impacting Harvey Weinstein, how the internet is impacting the New York Times, and you know people. There, there's this weird sort of phrase that kept being repeated in sort of the fallen articles of Weinstein. You know, this still powerful, you know, or, or his power may have waned, but people are still fearful of him. This sort of like going on about how his power is is not as strong as 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 it might mm-hmm. have been, and certainly some aspect of it is he's getting older. You know, he hasn't had like a a Oscar nominated film in, in 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 a few years, so you know maybe it's just the sort of natural aspect of his career. But there's all in which is, I, I would imagine is the case. I'm not the biggest Hollywood expert in the world about the sort of a specific who's who's who and what's not, but that would certainly sort of that rings true to say the least. But what is even more more true, and I can say this, you know, with a lot more certainty, is that movies generally are just much less of a cultural force than they were 
previously. Because now, I mean, just specifically entertainment, you've had this big shift to serial TV, whether it be mm-hmm. uh, on HBO or, or Netflix has also been a huge driver of this in this these like long-running multi-year series. And that's where the real prestige is, right? It used to be the TV was a real step down for a movie star. You, know, you go there to resuscitate your career. You get starred in TV, but the, the goal was to become a movie star, right? Now it's almost gone in, in, in the other direction. And then more broadly, there's the all there's all these different ways to get out there. And I talked about YouTube and and, and, and all the all these people on YouTube with, with with followers and subscribers and YouTube like the very concept of a YouTube star, what makes this so fascinating is there was there is no gatekeeper. They literally came from nowhere. No one told them what to do. No one made them do terrible things to get the position that, that, that they were. They put videos on YouTube. They worked hard. They did it again and again. They leveraged social media to, to spread the word. And now maybe they do become movie stars, but they're coming in by virtue of the power and popularity they've accrued outside of the system and leveraged that into a role as opposed to being a nobody who has to do what Harvey Weinstein says if you even want to have a chance. There's a, I mean, absolutely agree with that. And that removal of the gatekeeper aspect is is absolutely critical. But there's another element to it that's probably contributing, and it relates to something that we talked about earlier, which is the the, the artistry or the intuition element of of these folks and and their role in the production of entertainment or in their. Uh, it's probably less applicable to VC, but you start to see this happening where you see things like YouTube, where you're able to run many experiments. Or you think about something like Netflix and all the data that's being generated around what people enjoy watching and the insights that can be generated as a result of that are taking, are, are taking decision making ar- around these topics out of the intuition realm and dragging it into the data based realm. And in those instances where you have someone who has data informing the decisions they make around whether to green light something like house of cards versus like relying on some old white guy's gut feeling like that that's going to start to result in the power of the old intuition uh, declining because the decisions you'll make when you base on data or running many experiments and putting things up and seeing what seeing what sticks like that is going to result in better better things coming because you go around that learning that learning circle faster you make better decisions you put better content out there and then more people start making decisions like that and it accrues benefits to to places like Netflix and YouTube and it improves their ability to do that again next time it's absolutely the case in VC the we I think we talked about this a few years ago. I certainly wrote about it. I'll put a note in the show notes about the dramatic impact that AWS has had on venture capital, mm. where you shifted from a world where you raise mm. money on a PowerPoint. Now, the no one raises money. I mean, it happens in very, very rare cases. But by and large, the expectation is you will bootstrap something, maybe with a very little amount of seed money. You'll do angel investing. You'll get angel investors. And you're not even raising Series A. Series A rounds are, are, are going to – there's already a product that already has traction and you're starting to accelerate can this actually scale out can 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 it can it mm. expand its market it used to be series a rounds went to buying servers right it's, but, but now your series a investors are making massively more data driven decisions because there's mm. actually a product to view there's actually customers that might be using it and it's it's totally different than it used to be 15 20 years ago and th- this is a Beautiful thing, A, in terms of like better outcomes, better companies, better movies, better TV shows. But in terms of removing that intuition, it limits the ability. It's in, it's going to, and it will in, continue to in, uh, limit the ability of people to stick nefarious things in that black box. Like, oh, the reason I'm not going to fund them is because they're not going to sleep with me. Yeah, I mean, just to, to put, to, not to be totally blunt about it, but yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And and this it's it this is a good thing. Does anyone think this is a bad thing? The only people that think this is a bad thing are the folks that had basically full reign to do what they wanted to, which is all these old white guys. I mean, again, Harvey, I'm not saying all these old white guys are like are like Harvey Weinstein. I, I think it's important to like he was a bad actor, he was a predator, and he ought to be condemned as an individual and have personal responsibility for his actions. Okay. But that's also you can also believe that as I do and acknowledge and see these systemic this the system that made this possible and be mm-hmm. pretty damn happy about the fact that that system is going away. Spot on. And not just that, 
to remember and to recall what is the agent of that change. And you see, again, with, 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 the, with, with media, to what extent, I don't know, it's certainly worth acknowledging that the New York Times today is a very different paper than it was the New York Times of, of, of before. And, and when, when Dean Bacquet says, oh, we are the New York Times, we're, we're devoted to whatever, yeah, maybe internally that's the case, but – I've written again and again that the business model really matters mm. for journalism. And what's interesting about the New York Times is it's completely flipped its business model on its head. It used to be it was an advertising-driven paper that layered on like subscription revenue on top. That was frosting on the on the proverbial cake. Now it is a subscription-driven paper that layers on advertising on the top. That is the new frosting on the cake. And it's the cake that matters. It's the cake that ultimately drives decisions. And as much as as journalists always love to, you know, brag about the wall between editorial and business side, at the end of the day, when when it reaches the very head, when it reaches the publisher and there is a go or no-go decision, you better believe that matters. It does matter. It always matters. And today, the New York Times is best served mm-hmm. by proving to its subscribers that we will pursue the hard stories. We will not be pressured by advertisers. Like That's a point of pride and a reason to support and a reason to subscribe. Whereas yeah, I, before, I, I, before yeah. the, it, it was different. I mean, this is this is one of these topics where over the course of um, over the course of this podcast, you have completely changed my mind because I thought it was just enough to have the walls between editorial and the business side, and a big believer in that. And you start to you start to get better at looking at the incentives. And you're exactly right. Like one of the biggest differences between this potentially that story running now, in fact. Uh, and, and one, one company passing up on the ability to run the story and it ending up at the New York Times as opposed to the New York Times quashing it. Like the biggest difference, you're exactly right, is the business model. Like they are now being paid by customers and not by advertisers and they are going to act with the customer's incentives uh with the customer's interests in mind as opposed to the advertiser's interests in mind. Right. And again, the, the way the way this manifests itself is not in sort of like the day-to-day decision making like should we run this article or not. It's in the it's in the should we should we invest the resources. I mean, these these two reporters worked on this for 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 months. Just as one of the reporters was in the same reporters that that worked on, uh, I apologize, I don't have the name in front of me, but she worked on the that Amazon story. Which again, mm. you can you can debate about that that story itself, uh, Judy Judy Cantor. You can debate that story and whether it was a fair story or appropriate, or whatever. I think we podcasted about it. I certainly wrote about. I actually wrote about it. I think three days in a mm. row because it was, but it was a big deal, right? But but why? It, 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 what was interesting was uh, Dean Bequette said shortly after that he was in an interview with, with Recode that. My job is to invest in more and more of those stories because the reason is that's what drives customer trust. That's what drives mm. subscribers believing in our mission. And it's not the day-to-day procedural stories. It's the knowledge that we are working on meaningful stories that make a difference. And that's what really matters. And that's what pays off, not just with this story. It's, it's, again, it's very easy to think about it in the very short term is a go, no go sort of decision about this story, right? But it's the backing up. Are we going to invest resources in this story? And that, you know, to go back to 2004, I don't know what happened to that story. It actually very much may be true that she didn't that that that, that the reporter did not have did not have a full story, right? And that was one of the responses was like of her at the time, like, oh, she only had like one source or whatever. Well, but that's that's the real issue. It's not. It's why didn't they devote more resources if she did have a source? Then the answer ought to have been, let's throw more resources at this. This is a potentially massive story, right? Mm-hmm. And that again, it's that high level, big picture decision making that is most impacted by these structural incentive issues, and that you can't deny that has changed for the times. Yeah, and and it, it adds up across uh, hundreds of the stories they they run every year, right? And you think about it from the perspective of: Do you think they would have made the investment to go after the the world's fastest growing retailer uh, back in the day? That's I, a great point, right? Because they're a, a potentially huge advertiser, right? Right, like one of probably one of the biggest advertisers that would have given them serious pause. But now, hmm, yeah, I th- I think we will double down. And yeah, you can have different opinions on 
on the what was in the story, but like they, they, you won't argue about the amount of resources they invested in it and how serious they were about it. Right, and, and, and believe me, I think that was a great story. I'm really glad it was printed. There's lots of stuff I disagreed about it, and I, I again, I wrote about this. I'll put links in the show notes. You go back and read. It. But the tech needs a counter. It needs people challenging all the stuff that we presume is true because that's the implication of all the power that is in tech. So it's it's a good thing. It's good to have this balance. And I think it's it's great to see this new model that makes it such that the biggest newspapers can have the incentive structure to challenge the biggest companies because that wasn't the case before. So let me let me switch gears slightly because I think we've made a we've litigated a pretty good case about how it's a good thing, but it also seems to be misfiring a little bit right now when you look at it in the instance of Facebook. I mean, this is <laughs> our favorite topic. Uh-huh. Well, so, I so there was I couldn't resist. You know, there was a broader point I think that I, I want to get at with this article because there is there, there's a sort of sense that oh, all this internet stuff is so bad, and this is actually a very concrete example of where the internet is actually a pretty great thing. Did the internet, broadly speaking, expose? Harvey Weinstein? No, but the internet has created the conditions for this exposure mm. to take place, and it is also creating the conditions to undo these power structures, these these horribly disproportionate situations where one side has all the power and the other side doesn't. Again, it's already happening in venture capital. I mean, th- th- that these harassment issues are still happening is bad, but it's, it, it's worth acknowledging that we're at least we're in a situation where there is more data-driven decision-making in the industry, and that's because of the internet enabling things like cloud computing, for example. And you looked on the road to, I mean, with things like like cryptocurrencies and, and ICOs, and who knows, there, there's actually a theoretical future where this entire thing is undone completely, which which doesn't sound like the worst thing in the world to me. And it's the same thing in, in, in media. Like, the, <laughs> that I can write here about the New York Times is an implication of there not being gatekeepers. No one gave me permission to set up a webpage. No one gave me permission to start setting credit card n- numbers. I can just sign up for an account with Stripe and I'm good to go. And that's, like, there's really good things that that it came because of the internet and so many of those things are about the stuff that wasn't talked about before. If you look back, when you look back at the old world, it was a world that was chronicled by a bunch of old white guys. And so it's really easy to look back and see, wow, that world looks really great. But you're for all that stuff, you're foregoing all the counterfactuals. What are all the stories that weren't written? What are all the terrible things that were going on, not just in Hollywood, not just in Silicon Valley, not just in the media, but everywhere that we had no idea about because there were gatekeepers controlling what we saw and what we heard. Yeah, and, and and not to make the point for a third time, but like, and now the internet's kind of getting the blame, and like things are bad right now because it's coming to light now. It's it's frustrating. Well, no, but that's exactly it, and that's why I I, I mean, yeah, the, 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 uh, this is the tie-in to, to the whole sort of Facebook debate and all that. Like, there's it's interesting this this sort of there's this aspect of sort of myth making. I think we've talked about this on the podcast previously, and and by mm. myths I mean not necessarily that it's untrue per se, but it's like collectively collective beliefs, and, and mm-hmm. those beliefs become sort of unspoken assumptions that underlie you know what what we say and what you do, and and it's been fascinating this whole Facebook thing. Like there's it's sort of becoming well, of course you know Facebook is responsible for for. Trump's election, and not responsible in a the, where the way we've discussed it and I've written about where Facebook, you know, undid the power of the media and by virtue of that undid the power of the political party such that someone could come from the outside and and marshal sort of power on their own. Like I think there's big picture structural impacts that the internet and Facebook has had on our election. So from that perspective, we I, mean, I said this last week, but it's worth re- reiterating. Like Facebook is in some sense in social media generally responsible for this, but as a sort of direct, explicit, causal mechanism in that they're allowing Russian ads swung the election, like it's becoming like it's you can't question it. it and it's it's fascinating to watch myth making sort of happen almost in real life. It I mean it's immensely frustrating on some level too, because on on one hand, I I mean I, I think folks who've listened to this podcast for a while know that uh, I certainly have my fair share of frustrations with Facebook but I'm I don't 
I don't think it's a good idea to pin something on them just because you think it's going to stick and that's that's going to solve the problem because it's not the Russian ads that are the problem here. It's the more fundamental things that we're, we're now that are now being completely drowned out as a result of what's being focused on things like the filter bubbles that we've talked about, like that. That is a problem that is causing the the polarization that we're seeing, or, or at least in part responsible for the polarization that we're seeing. And people aren't talking about that because it's all it is, is Russia, Russia, Russia. Or what's worse is like starting to blame the internet. Like there was this article in the New York Times that you, you tweeted about where the New York Times was starting to sing the praises of the Great Firewall of China and the Chinese government's ability to control "Quote unquote nefarious forces like this." It, it was almost painted in a positive light, and it I was found painted it in a positive light. It said, "And China's not resting on their laurels; they're like pushing forward." Yeah, the, I mean, it, it's a, it's it's it was mind blowing. It was one of the most mind blowing yeah. things because they're like, "There's it's, it's amazing." Like, there's this presumption: "Oh, look at this. Maybe this isn't such a bad thing after all." Look how Facebook allowed Russian mind control to the Chinese firewall is mind control. It is it and is a, it is yeah. on a grand scale. Like they. Quoted this guy. They quoted this guy in this article saying that would never happen here, re- referring to Russian meddling in the U.S. presidential election. There's just so many things going wrong with this. One, there aren't presidential elections for to meddle in. First and foremost, two, they should have asked this guy if he knows what happened in Tiananmen Square in 1989. I bet mm. you anything, he has no clue. Imagine wow. that. Imagine I ne- I something never happened. You would use my example. I know. <laughs> I know. It's so true. You, I mean, I, I. This is maybe the biggest apology I owe you in the history of Exponent. You always bring up this Chinese internet thing and Tiananmen Square, and I'm like, you're saying it again. Blah blah blah. blah. You're going overboard. And sometimes I'm like, I have to. You know, I'm going to take that out. I don't want to bang the ground. And you were totally right. I'm sorry, James. I'm sorry. That's okay, but totally. I'm, I'm, I'm just happy to hear you say it. Like, I, like, I'm much more interested in like re- reaching a meeting of the minds than getting an apology. But that's no. But that's exactly it. The, the only way you can write an article, and this isn't an opinion article. It's a news article that speaks so favorably about the control of information and the censorship. In, in, in the way, uh, in this, the, the control, top-down control in China is that you've so internalized that what we have is bad and evil. Mm. And that's what I mean Mm -hmm. about this myth-making, right? And that's why, like, I've been shouting about the fake news thing from the day the election ended. This is the article I wrote after the election. Like, let's be careful here. Let's be careful. Because the end game, the end game of blaming a very complicated thing that happened, which is the, the Trump election, and all the things that go into it, whether it be race, whether it be inequality, whether it be resent cultural resentment, the culture wars, whether it be the sort of the, the, the two worlds of myth making that have happened, where we've had, we're losing our shared myths, where there's mm. almost like the, mm. the the red myths and the blue myths, and and right. and. And it's, and both sides are certain the other ones myths are totally ridiculous. And the truth is, you know, sort of all myths kind of have a, a grain of truth somewhere in them. And and that's almost certainly the case, right? And and to reduce that to it's fake news, there was I could see it back then. There was so much danger in that because what's the end game? The end game is we need to control what people read. We need to control what people think. If only they thought better, we would have better outcomes. And down that road lies totalitarianism, down that road is authoritarianism, and down that road lies the New York Times writing a paper about maybe the Chinese firewall isn't so bad after all. Yeah, I mean, and this is where this is where Facebook does get really scary because it, in a certain sense, it has become a gatekeeper of using data so to be fair it's it's using data to to give people give the people what they want and that's a separate conversation i have enough problems with that i don't think it makes people happy i don't think they have necessarily their users best interests at heart but right we've i mean we've been criticizing facebook well before it, other people got to them particularly you right. to your to your credit but our criticism is 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 not this criticism <laughs> Right. And, and it's centralized, but like if this, if this myth starts to take hold, the fact that there is that much centralized power in terms of they have managed to aggregate the eyeballs of so many people. And if you start having a, 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 a myth forming that the only way that we're going to survive is someone needs to come along and make sure what people read is like, okay. Not only that, it's all like the ability to 
impact that is in one place. You just need to go to one organization and figure that out and you can get there. Like that's like the combination of those two things makes this so dangerous. Right. That's the thing because the tools are increasingly there. They're, they're, they're tantalizingly in reach. And right. conveniently enough, Facebook already built censorship tools because they want to get into China. <laughs> I mean, like, mm-hmm. so it's mm-hmm. like all that's standing between sort of like top down censorship via social networks is, is like political will. And you see at least in certain pockets in this sort of like coastal elite pocket that it's switching from not only unthinkable to Desirable and and again, our it's very important to, to make clear. I said, oh, our criticism is different, but our criticism of Facebook is of that centralization because the the end game for centralization is is this? It's authoritarianism, and it, it's so it's so close. The tools there, I can see it. If we can make Facebook censor, then we, then things will be better. And 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 it's such a difficult conversation to have because there's so many things that are bad. That are objectionable, that 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 seem ought not to exist, and they today seem worse than ever. But why are they worse than ever today? They're worse than ever today because we're actually exposed to it in a way we mm. weren't in a world of gatekeepers. Like we're, we're seeing the reality for what it is, and I would mm. rather harness that realization to make things better. Not to pretend and stuff it all back in a bag by instituting a new gatekeeper that is a hundred, a thousand times more powerful than any of the gatekeepers that came before. I have two cultural references at this point. One is one is it it feels like one of my favorite movies. Like this is a red red pill blue pill moment, right? Like you we, like you wake up and you get to see what's actually going on, and you'd rather get plugged back in. But there's a there's another. Um, Another point, one of our listeners, uh, Penelope, emailed us in with a quote um, by a gentleman by the name of, well, I don't know if it's a gentleman or a lady, but someone by the name of H.L. Mencken. And it, it goes along the lines of the urge to save humanity is almost always a false front for the urge to rule. And it's it like you see it in so many instances around here, like that's what this mismaking results in. And, and like uh, it's it just feels so it feels so dangerous. I, uh, H- it's a guy, um, Henry Lewis McKay. Okay, uh, the no, but that's we need we need more history. Like we need to see the history of totalitarians are almost always cloaked in good intentions, and mm-hmm. and it's those people, it's those people who are stopping me, stopping us, stopping the people from doing what's right. And if they just need to be eliminated, they just need to be silenced, and then we can do what's right. And, and you're right. And I I actually like the red pill blue pill because i think that's a choice for a lot of our listeners right now it's like the momentum and the fervor to blame all our problems on facebook is so overwhelming right now and it's becoming an article of unquestioned faith there is this myth being created within sort of our elite coastal bubble that this is true and that's why I keep pushing back on this. Is Facebook problematic? Absolutely. You're very concerned about Facebook's impact on sort of our emotional health and what it does to us as humans. And I'm very concerned about Facebook's broader, the structural impact of our society where we're, you know, the, we're both concerned about filter bubbles and polarization, all sorts of stuff. And that's yeah. all stuff worth being concerned about. What, but that's actually 180 degrees opposite of the implication of, of this myth making concern where the right. end game is censorship and censorship is such an easy thing to sell because the stuff that wants to be censored is always so objectionable yes but it's the all that stuff you don't see it's all the counterfactuals that make it so devious and so dangerous and the history of humanity is that it doesn't end well i feel like that's a really high point for us to <laughs> to like <laughs> yeah, we're, we're making pronouncements about humanity yeah yeah right like i feel like we've reached the end of the episode when we say stuff like that. okay well uh <laughs> on that note i will talk to you next week it sounds good mate have a good one right, bye-bye